Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. We are we are cozying up to unsolved case files today. <laughs> it's wintry time. I mean, you know, California is California, but we have our version Listen, of it's cozy been a time. Chilly here. What's up? It's been a little chilly here. So there you go. But today on the show, we are going to talk about an unsolved case, and Kathy's going to take it away with her case. Okay, I'll do that now. Oh, all right. So I picked this case not only for just incredibly how gruesome it was, but also <laughs> like how badly the cops were oh. either negligent or corrupt. Oh, no. And so there's a little bit of like, like how did how did this go so wrong? How did this and happen, fellas? How did, how did they ignore this evidence? So. um the case is called the Keddie murders, the, the Keddie family, K-E-D-D-I-E, if you want to look it up. Okay, I will. So this uh, case took place in 1979. In July 1979, Glenna Susan, or as they called her Sue Sharp, was in Springfield, Massachusetts, along with her five children. She had just left her home in Connecticut after separating from her husband, James Sharp. So they relocated to Northern California where Sue's brother Don lived. And um, upon arriving there in California, she had rented a small trailer formerly occupied by her brother at the Claremont trailer village in a town called Quincy. So Sue's ex-husband was in the military and when they divorced and the Navy gave her uh, all of $250 a month to start her new life, she uh, started to have to work a part-time job at the Quincy Elks Lodge. And with the little money she brought in, she rented the Ketty Cabin. So I'm sorry, the cabins was after a community called Ketty. Her last name is Sharp. That's why the Ketty murders mean the yeah. location that they happened. That's right. Um, so Sue, Sue rented uh, a Ketty Cabin, number 28, which mm. the numbers are relevant here, gotcha. in the fall of 1981. So a couple of years after she had left. She had resided there with her 15-year-old son, John, 14-year-old daughter, Sheila, 12-year-old daughter, Tina, and two younger sons, Rick, age 10, and Greg, age 5. So single mom with all these kids. That's wow. rough. That's tough. Especially in the 70s. So she was trying to better her situation and took up a typing class with financial aid that was awarded to her. And according to folks in her community, she was relatively, relatively quiet. She kept to herself, but the family um, apparently was very friendly. They integrated well, but they were just a little bit more reserved. And the children were also attending school at Quincy and they were making friends. So it didn't seem like there was anything, you know, particularly odd about this family. Sure. They're just, you know, busy single mom, lots of kids and probably coming and going and not having a lot of time to really socialize with too the much community. to think about to do anything too else. much to think about. Right. From the front door. So describe a little bit what it, what it, look like inside. So from the front door, their small of their small wooden cabin, it, it opened into a living room. Beyond the living room was the kitchen and two bedrooms. So the girls shared one and the younger boy shared the other. The oldest boy, John, got the ground floor basement all to himself. And from the ground level in the back of the house, a flight of stairs led up to the main living area. Gotcha. So on April 11th, 1981, at around 1130 a.m., Sue, Sheila, and Greg drove from the residence of their friends, the Meeks family, to retrieve Rick, who was attending baseball tryouts at Ganser Field in Quincy. So this is 1130 in the morning. So they happen upon John and his friend Dana Hall Wingate 
hitchhiking at the mouth of the canyon from Quincy to Ketty, and then drove them about six miles away to Ketty. So just kind of orienting people to what's going on throughout this day. Two hours later, around 3.30 p.m., John and Dana hitchhiked back to Quincy, where they may have had plans to visit friends. So around this time, the boys were seen in the city's downtown area. That's all we know. So that same evening, Sheila had plans to spend the night with the Seabolt family, who lived in, I think it was uh, cabin number 27, which was an adjacent unit. Mm. So while Sue, the mother, remained at home with Rick, Greg, um, and the boy's young friend, Justin Smart, when that name is important. So Sue's at home with the younger boys. The other kids are out. Sheila, the daughter, is next door at the Seabolt family. So Sheila leaves the house shortly after eight o'clock at night to sleep at the Seabolts. And so Tina, the other daughter who had been watching television at the Seabolt residence actually comes home after asking what time it was. She realized it was late. She goes home. So they kind of did this switch. So all that's really relevant here is that the kids are kind of going back and forth. It's that culture of like, you know, I'm going to the neighbors. I'll see you later. And, you know, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, of course, mm -hmm. (laughs) 70s, the 70s. And then the other kids are out hitchhiking and doing weird shit. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So at approximately 8 a.m. the next morning, so on the morning of April 12th, Sheila returns home and discovers the dead bodies of her mom, John and Dana, in the house's living room. Oh my God. Um, All three had been bound with medical tape and electrical cords. Tina was absent from the home. She was not there. Okay. She was the one that had come home later that night. Mm -hmm. So while the three younger children, Rick, Greg, and then Justin Smart, the friend, were found physically unharmed in an adjacent bedroom. Uh, okay so tied up but not harmed nope they were just like sitting there just they had slept through it or they had you know they just came they woke up that next morning and also you know when they heard her come home yeah realize like oh there's you know three dead people in the house yeah okay so initial reports stated that the three young boys had slept through the incident all this although later this was actually contradicted that that wasn't true so the murders of sue john and dana were especially vicious. So there were two bloody knives and one hammer uh, found at the scene. And one of the knives, a steak knife, later determined to have been used in the murders, had been bent at roughly 30 degrees. So really violent. Did a bone and couldn't get through. Oh my God. And also I'm just struck by like, like those were murder weapons that were just dropped there. Yeah. Completely either completely out of their mind or just careless or just violent and passionate, like just not thinking, like disorganized, right? That's right. Yeah. It was just like, okay, so you kill three people and you leave all this stuff there. Yeah. So, and remember, this is 1979. There's no DNA at this point right. that they're using. I mean, there's DNA, but they're not using it. Understood. So blood spatter evidence from inside the house indicated that the murders had all taken place in the living room. Just that, and which makes sense maybe why, you know, they're not using guns and things. So these kids didn't, apparently didn't hear what was going on in the other room. I guess not. As far as we know. So Sue yeah. was discovered lying on her side near like, the... no screaming? I yeah, don't know. I mean... Okay. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, if someone gets stabbed, you know, if the other... Maybe the other two were sleeping, and then it was all... I, I don't know. We'll, yeah, we're we'll not see. sure, but it's interesting, right, to think about... How do people stay so quiet? Mm-hmm. Especially because you're sharing walls, too. It's cabin. Duct tape, I guess, but, like, your sh- cabins, especially in the 70s... I can tell you, not a lot of privacy. I'll mention something regarding that I'm in a sure. moment. 
So she was, uh, Sue was discovered lying on her side near the living room sofa, nude from the waist down and gagged with a blue bandana and her own underwear, which had been secured with tape. Although we, that makes the explanation for one person being silent. You can't sure. gag three people at once. She had been stabbed in the chest and her throat was stabbed horizontally, the wound passing through her larynx, super painful, yeah. nicking her spine, and on the side of her head was an imprint matching the butt of a Daisy 880 Powerline BB pellet rifle. My goodness. So violent. So John's throat, the son, was slashed. Dana had multiple head injuries and had been manually strangled to death. John and Dana suffered blunt force trauma to their heads caused by one or more hammers. Uh. Autopsies determined that Sue and John died from the knife wounds and blunt force trauma and Dana died by asphyxiation. I mean, this is someone who was on a fucking mission. It's awful. Yeah. After Sheila sees this gruesome scene, she runs back to the Seabolts next door to get help. And while the Seabolts tried to calm, calm her down, their teenage son, Jamie Seabolt, goes over to cabin 28 to Sue's house to see if anyone's still alive. Mm. So the three boys in the house, Rick, Greg, and their friend Justin, are all safe in the bedroom. Mm. They were still asleep and seemingly unaware of what had happened. Jamie ushered them out of the house through the bedroom window to protect them from the horrifying crime scene. So that was one of the first smart things done here. Yeah. So given the extent of the brutality of the Ketty Cabin murders, there was plenty of evidence left behind. They found a bloody fingerprint on the handrail leading down from the back door. However, the only blood found was on the victims and all over the house, floors, walls, ceiling, etc. But the perpetrators were able to escape without leaving any of their own blood behind. They did seem to have some DNA on a piece of tape that they had used to cover a mouth, but this is like before any of that was really sophisticated. So it was not enough or not enough to give them any answer. So they didn't have like the right tests yet. Or they didn't have the right tests yet. Yeah. The whole scene is so profoundly messy. And they talk about how there was so much chaos during the search that things were just being dropped and moved and people were able to come in and out. We talked about this during the Amanda Knox too, yep. right? Something similar Lots of happened. different cases have this Yeah, issue. but I remember specifically going like, yeah. wow, well, that just botched everything. So, yep. so a few hours go by before they even realize that Tina, the other daughter, isn't even, they, they don't even know where she is. In all the chaos. So she's nowhere to be found. So they found bloodstains on her bed leading to the belief that she was kidnapped from her bed. Mm-hmm. So due to the chaos, uh, you know, it takes a few hours before anyone realizes she's gone and many, many hours pass since her disappearance. So the chance of anyone finding her at this point or finding her nearby now is pretty slim. So do we have any witnesses? So we talked about, you know, whether there were noises or anything like that, or did anybody see anything? Sure. So, so the neighbors near near the cabin where it took place in 28 reported that they heard muffled screams or groans that woke them up between one and 2 AM, but they couldn't determine where the sounds came from and went back to sleep. So it was probably just enough to disturb them, but to not make out And there's nothing there. And so you just go, I must've dreamt it or something. Well, you you know, any of us who have lived in apartments, townhomes Uh where we share walls, we hear weird shit. Yeah. And you don't do everything, do something about every weird thing you hear. No, because a lot of times what you hear is like, I don't know if that's what that sounded Mm -hmm. weird, but you're not sitting there going, that's probably a murder. Yeah. No, (laughs) our minds don't immediately go to that. They don't. And if they do, 
well, oh, well you've been watching too much true crime. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the cor- coroner and the police findings. So it's evident that Sue had put up a fight during the attack. She had defensive wounds on her arms. Oddly, John and Dana did not have any defensive wounds or blood under their bindings. And I would imagine that's because they were asphyxiated and John's throat was slashed. So Mm -hmm. it's like, what are you going to fight? You're done right right away. No, no. Yeah. She was probably sexually assaulted and had, you know, other things going on before they, before they used the hammer or whatever it was that killed her. Mm -hmm. So it appears that they didn't have even a chance to, to fight back. So all of their injuries happened after the killers had tied them up. So what are some, we have some suspects and findings here. So upon discovering the scene, Sheila rushes back to the Seabolts, like I had said, and Jamie Seabolt retrieves Rick, Greg, and Justin through the bedroom window. He later admits to having briefly entered the home through the back door to see if anyone was still alive, potentially contaminating evidence in the process. So here's the first knowledge of, okay, okay it wasn't a pure scene, right? right. So. Was he involved? Now we don't know. Now it's just suspicious. Yeah, it's like, oh yeah, no, I forgot. Oh yeah, I ruined I it. Just uh, whoops. Walked through the back door and the okay. <laughs> yeah, sure. So now a month after the Ketty murders take place, Justin, who Justin Smart, who's one of the survivors, tells his therapist that he was having dreams about the murder. Mm. Um, so you know he's starting to seemingly like things are starting to resurface. So in his dream, he had tried to stop the bleeding in Sue's chest with towels and he covered her with a blanket. It was a dream. Sure. It's just a dream. So after being placed under hypnosis and stating hearing noises out in the living room and claiming to have seen two men with Sue, describing them in detail, it was believed that the police made suggestions to Justin while under hypnosis. So this testimony wasn't credible. Oh boy. So we know this too about hypnosis, that it, it's one of those things that people are allowed to testify on and they can talk about it, but the weight of the credibility in court is quite low yeah. just because there can be so much room for suggestibility. There's two main suspects in this case. The first one is Marty Smart, Justin's father. The dad, okay. Okay. So Marty Smart lived with his wife in cabin 26, so just two cabins over. Marty was Justin's stepfather, and his wife happened to be in the same typewriting. Actually, Marty and his wife happened to be in the same typewriting class with Sue. Mm-hmm. So he had a reputation of being a hothead. He, at one point, had allegedly tried running over his son and wife. And during his interrogation, Marty offered to the police that his hammer with a blue handle had gone missing. Oh, yeah, sure. I don't know. It's just not in the garage anymore. (laughs) What? Okay. So my we needed to mention that. So so my first thought here is if you don't know anything about the case, it's so random. I know. My first thought is was it Justin? Yeah. Right. Because he could have taken the hammer, but then his his dream and his body was clean. There Uh, was nothing left on him unless he showered. I don't know. Which is what people do. But he also told investigators that his stepson, Justin, might have seen something on the night of the murder without the killer detecting the boy. So like Justin was able to, you know, he may have mentioned to me that he saw something. It's so. So a few years after his interrogation, Marty's wife, Marilyn, said that she had found Tina's bloody jacket in their basement. What? 
here's where it gets real fucked and had given it to the police during the earlier investigation, but no one had any record of it. What? Oh my God. So this girl is missing. I think they end up finding her body later, like far away. They, okay. they end up finding her, but her bloody jacket is, oh yeah. Um, oh, by the way, I, by the way, I, I, I found her bloody jacket in our basement <laughs> okay. and I, and I had given it to the police during the earlier investigation, but then why don't the cops have that? Oh boy. So Marty's counselor at the Veterans Administration in Reno tells police that Marty confessed to killing Sue and Tina, but not the two boys. What? So according to the story, Marty said that he was angry that Sue had convinced Marilyn to leave him. Remember, they all shared the typewriting class. Oh, yeah. On the other hand, his reason for killing Tina was that she had seen everything. As a result, he couldn't allow her to live. So although the counselor initially reported Marty's statements to the police not long after the killings, the police did not log the information as evidence or follow up what? with this information. Good God. It's like so many things. So after the interrogation, Marty moves to Reno dies in Oregon in the year 2000. Like they don't want to follow up. What the fuck are these idiots? Holy shit. So then in 2018, one of the detectives matches the DNA from the murder scene to a known living suspect. But okay. since then, no arrests have been made. The names have never been released to the public. And nevertheless, Gamberg, the detective, says that six people may have been involved. Two suspects, huh. Marty and Bo, had died. And of the suspects who are still alive, oh, they just don't know. Uh, uh, okay. So... I just want to recap on the fact that there was apparently all this evidence turned in. And if let, let's go with the fact that six people were involved. Is that police corruption? Were there law enforcement involved? Right. Because, okay. So I'm thinking, yeah, the murder scene absolutely seems like a thing where there would be multiple people involved because there's just so much going on. There's so many weapons. There's, it's not a one, this is not a one person. It doesn't feel like a one person thing because there's so many victims and there's blood all over the place and there's all these different injuries, different weapons, different things going on. And then I'm like, well, how, but also how do, how do six people or three people or however many fucking people you want to talk about go into this home and the freaking people in the next room don't hear any of the people and the footsteps? Well, here's my thought. Here's what? Yeah. Here's my thought. So you have, so I didn't talk much about Bo. Bo was friends with Marty and um the dad no marty is the stepdad and then his his friend Bo. oh right there's just a friend so so they were two suspects and then you have the son justin there's three right there yeah let's say you add in the the dumbass seabolt friend that was next door that oh yeah by the way i walked through the back of the house there's four okay okay all right then maybe you have marty's wife in on it who apparently like gave evidence at some point there's five and then all it takes is one cop to be a part of it and there's six and there's the one cop that didn't report And where did we get the number six from so we have like somebody said maybe there was yeah somebody said six so you know if we were gonna based on the information we have it'd be marty his wife his stepson the neighbor boy Bo yeah. and maybe and you'd only really need a couple of them to 
do the murders and the rest of them are just helping. Well, right? yeah, because you can have the cop who maybe there is all this information that was turned in and, oh, I don't know, somehow it got destroyed. Yeah. This is this is a crime of passion. Mm-hmm. It's so violent. This isn't someone who was going in to steal something or, I mean, this was a revenge of some kind or they were wanting someone to stay quiet or something. Well, and so they're the only motive that's been asserted is that marty had some issue with the like an affair or something that's the only no marty had some issue with the fact that so marty his wife and sue were all in a typewriting class together and i guess he had found out that sue was telling her to leave marty oh and so he was pissed off about that and we have information knowing not that this means that he would murder somebody but that he did have a hot he was a hothead and there was one report that he tried running his stepson and wife over with his car once so like this is a guy who clearly had you know impulse anger impulse control anger issues yeah impulse control and would act it out. In other words, he would get mad and then do something, which is different yeah. from just like getting mad and yelling and being a general jackass. So it's like, it looks like they spared, you know, the two boys. And then if, if the Seabolts and not the Seabolts, if the smarts were involved, then it makes sense why their son wasn't touched. You know, Tina, if Tina did see something, it would make sense why she was gone. Why someone would want to come in and take out an entire family. Well, and that's another interesting thing, too, like why they left who they left, right? Like it was what you're saying, like Justin was still alive. It's like why they didn't kill the people they didn't kill. They only killed. And also, if you've got some issue with the wife, why kill everybody else? Like it takes a certain kind of psycho to kill Maybe because they were in the same room with her and they didn't. I I mean, I think they they were fucked it up. I think that just, you know, because they're saying Tina died as well because she saw everything. Mm. And then the other two kids died because they were in the same room. But we also can't rule out the husband, James, too. Right. So I don't know. It's a really, really bizarre. And again, you know, I've said this in some of the other cases we've looked at. 1970s, 1980s, 1990s. We don't have ring cameras. We don't have Nest cameras. We don't have GPS locations. We don't have text messages. We don't have any of that. Like we have now, it was so much easier and it's a cabin. So it's probably somewhat remote, small town and everyone knows each other, including law enforcement and civilians. There's a lot of incestuous, you know, over like those relationships blend. It's like when you watch horror movies and when the cop pulls someone over and like they know him, you know, that those stereotypes come from reality, from reality. Yeah. And this is 1981. So yeah, a lot of. Like, so with the cops bumbling at all too, like I'm, (laughs) they had evidence of the jacket. They had Marty confessed to his, uh, to his therapist at the veteran center and then dies, of course, a couple decades later, but also Marty's not implying any of these other five people that were involved. He just talks about his own thing. He says that he killed Sue and Tina, but oh. not the two boys. But then there's no discussion of who else, who did kill the two boys. No, it just says his reason for killing Tina was that she had seen everything. And then the, and then the therapist brings this to the cops. 
then the therapist, yeah, and then it says that the police did not log the information as evidence <laughs> or follow up with this information. So that's where I go. That's why you're like, what? There's got to be somebody that's in on it kind of thing. For sure. Oh my God. That's it's so, a, it, the whole thing is a mess. That's so ridiculous. Yeah. Now, I know a lot of documentaries and different things have been made about these murders, but I've not seen any of them. So we're I'm coming in cold to this as far as... Me like, too. This like is all I know is from doing yeah. just the research for this episode. And I couldn't find anything that even alluded to, oh, you know, years have gone by and now we know this, this, and this. It's like, well, they destroyed so much information yeah. that there was no possible way. There were no arrests ever made. No names. Also, no names were ever released to the public. Like, it just seems like. Like a cover up. Yes. It seems like a cover up. And then you, and then it's like, well, nobody was figuring out what the motive for the cover up was. It wasn't about some fucking guy and his, like, you're convincing my wife to leave. Like, so I'm just going to take out a whole yeah, family. It just doesn't seem that doesn't jive either. Like, I just think the real reasons are buried. Oh, sure. But it is interesting because it's one of those big unsolved cases where, like, like I said, like the docs and stuff have been made about it. But when I just did a quick Google search, all the articles are sort of like, why the case was bungled? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why it still remains unsolved? And why the, you know, small town police are vilified over this, of course. And there I, had to have been multiple people involved, though, to pull off yes. something this large. Just the freaking murder says multiple people. But yeah, then to pull off this and have it buried and with when you have a confession and blood evidence yeah i mean it's like the counselor's going uh hello like he's telling me yeah can you imagine and being literally being able to get away with murder like that how frustrating that would be and then what you're going to keep seeing that guy in, they, your, in your practice and it's like they interrogated <laughs> him they didn't log anything he he moves then he just moves to reno yeah, <laughs> yeah then he moves bye. to oregon and then he dies <laughs> yeah okay bye <laughs> Bye. Thanks. I murdered. Bye. <laughs> like what? I murdered a lot. Okay. Bye. <laughs> oh my God. Fuck. Okay. Well, thanks, Kathy. You're That's welcome. All like awful. Now I want to watch some of these docs and stuff and see, see what, see some other theories. Like what? I got to know what, what? I'm sure if I did a really deep dive on this, I may find other motives, but there's, there's regardless Regardless of that, they have, they just botched everything. No, no, no. Case. That's that obvious. That's obvious. And I'm imagining if you do a deep dive, you're just going to find more botchedness. Botchedness. Like <laughs> but uh, maybe on one of our shows where we talk about some docs, you know, we do kind of wrap up episodes where we talk about good docs we've seen and stuff like that. I don't know. Maybe I'll check one or two out and see if they're any interesting tidbits about how they botched more of the case or like, I like the ones where they talk about all their crazy theories. And so maybe there's some crazy theories. What I appreciate about the new series of, I did not find this case on unsolved mysteries. Although sometimes I will go there is um, what I appreciate about the newest season, the new newer seasons mm. is it's one case per episode. Oh, nice. Where in the old unsolved mysteries, you'd get it was like, like three or four. It, it'd be like 15, 20 minutes where now like it's a whole 45 minute episode on one crime. Well, now they see our, our listening pleasure has, has yeah. shifted where we aren't as vapid as we used to be as watchers and listeners, because it used to be that we just wanted like kind of quick 
quick bits and pieces, but because true crime has become so much a part of our culture now, five, ten episodes, whole movies, documentaries, multiple documentaries, mm-hmm. all the things, that's really smart because they've just realized that audiences want more depth. Like, they've yeah. heard it all. In yeah. other words, when Unsolved Mysteries started, it was really unique and interesting. We didn't hear about all those true crime things then. Now we hear no. about them all. Yeah. And so they need to do more, which right. is smart, 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 smart. Well, thank you so much for that, Kathy. You're so welcome. We bring these to the show. We hope you enjoy it. If you have an unsolved case you'd like us to uh, shoot the shit about, let us know. We will do it. Thank you so much for listening. This has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone.